For young people, the question always comes, what will I do next? Well, here's an idea, CORE. CORE is a discipleship and evangelism program that runs for nine months. And in that short amount of time, you will learn everything you need to know to become an effective soul winner, as well as having the tools to ensure that your walk with God remains rooted in Jesus Christ. They will teach you how to do and give Bible studies, all about literature evangelism, mental health, and health evangelism, how to use digital media to further God's work, and even take you on an overseas mission program to help you practice what you preach. For more information, go to coreevangelism.com. Welcome to season three of Why They Did That. I'm your host, Dean Cullinane, and I cannot wait to share with you the amazing episodes that we have lined up for this season. 12 new ones with some brand new guests and some of your favorites returning too, as well as a lot more additional content. It's going to be awesome. Now, before we get started, I just wanted to touch on a couple of things. Many of you have been asking how you can support this podcast, and we finally got an answer. If you would like to support financially, you can now do so via our Patreon account. You can sign up for as little as $5 a month, and the more you give, the more you get in return. We've got a ton of additional content and special features that we will only be sharing with our Patreon community. So you can check that out at www.patreon.com forward slash WTDT. And you can help ensure that we can continue to make this podcast for years to come. Now, there is another way, and perhaps we haven't emphasized this enough, but it would do our show the world of good for you, our audience, to share the content. Share the episodes on your Instagram and Facebook pages. Send your friends the links. If you see a post on social media, comment, like, share may not seem like much, but 10 seconds of your time can help push why they did that and get the content out to even more people. And whenever you do share, make sure to tag us as well so we can see it and give you a big thanks. So there you go. We're now on Patreon and we encourage you to check that out. And don't forget to share the content if you're blessed by it so others can be too. Now, let's get in to season three. And so the response that Samuel gives him is, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. And this isn't just for people who lived in the Old Testament dichotomy or the, the Old Testament you know, framework where they had sacrifices and so forth. This is true for us. Just because I'm following the seeming letter of the law by doing what God has asked, but I'm doing it on my terms or with an unfaithful, unloyal heart or unsurrendered heart, Heaven does not view that as obedience. I'm Dean Cullinane, and you're listening to Why They Did That, a show that explores the motivations of biblical characters and how their choices can guide yours. can say without a shadow of a doubt that no one has prepared for their episode more so than today's guest. 
How do I know that, you ask? Well, it's because we recorded it three separate times over the course of three separate years. It was meant to be in season one, but the audio file was corrupted. And then in season two, we had visual problems. And now, thankfully, it seems persistence has finally paid off. My guest on today's show is a man whose life so closely resembles mine that he actually has a list on his phone of all the ways in which we are alike, a list that he adds to pretty much every time we hang out. Over the years, he's become a great friend and someone to whom I look up to with admiration. He sold out for Jesus and it's infectious. D. Casper has been winning souls for Jesus ever since graduating from the Arise Discipleship and Soul Winning Institute. And currently, he's the director for the Core Discipleship and Evangelism Program that's located in Eastern Pennsylvania. He's doing a great job at it, too. Oh, and he's a single parent to his best friend and confidant, aptly named Buddy, his two year old chocolate Labrador. Anyone that spends even a few minutes with D knows that this man is called to public ministry, much like the focus of today's episode. A humble man called to the most public of ministries possible. The first king of Israel, King Saul. Now, King Saul gets a lot of slack, and sure, it's deserved. After all, we are talking about a man who tried to kill everyone's favorite king, David, multiple times. He almost got his own son killed and then did get his own son killed. He mocked the public office of the prophet Samuel. He visited witches in the night and eventually died by his own sword. I get it. I get it. His life snowballed out of control. But his beginning was so full of promise, potential and powerful experiences. His name wasn't meant to carry the burden it does today. He should have been a hero. He should have blazed the trail for future kings. His kingdom should have lasted until the very ends of the earth. And so today we unfold a truly tragic tale of the very loftiest of falls. So Saul's life and his ministry begins with a high point. Uh, he's a man who's recognizing his need of not being in charge, of not being the one that everyone looks at. He, he, he recognizes that it's, it's not about me. And he actually has a powerful transformation experience. Uh, it's a new covenant experience, really. In 1 Samuel 10 and verse 6, it says, And the Spirit of the Lord will come upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned to another man. And let it be when these signs come to you that you do as the occasion demands, for God is with you. And then in verse 9 it says, So it was when he had turned back to go from Samuel that God gave him another heart. Mm -hmm. So this implication is he's given a new heart, a new spirit is put within him, which is the same language that Ezekiel 36 uses on the idea of a new covenant, yeah. or Jeremiah 31, same type of premise. And this new covenant experience is best explained in a quote that I heard, that what is justification by faith? It's the work of God in laying the glory of man in the dust and doing for man that which it is not in his power to do for himself. Mm -hmm. And when men or women see their nothingness, they're prepared to be clothed with the righteousness of Christ. Mm -hmm. And his, his, his ministry began that way. His role as king began that way, that when they're looking for him to be king, he's hiding himself. He doesn't want to be recognized, doesn't want to be the person who their, their attention is on him in the nation. 
and this was to his benefit right. to start. Yeah. Uh, but unfortunately, his story doesn't remain kind of in that trajectory. Right. And we we know that trajectory. We're familiar, very familiar with with the arc of Saul, and I think that kind of gives us the it, it colors the picture for us in the sense where we don't, I think, look at this introduction to his walk with God and give it the credit, I guess, that it deserves. At this time, there's no doubt that Saul is the best man for this job. Absolutely. There's no one, there's no one else that, that, that you would think of. Not only does he have the physical attributes of what people perceived as being leadership material, he's tall, handsome, um, but he actually is a man who has a genuine relationship with God. And sometimes we allow his mistakes and his sins to take away from the fact that, no, this, is, this, this man was not just a horrible man who was a terrible king. This was a really great young man that had the potential to do amazing things for Israel. And this, this new heart, was given to him this genuine new experience which just proved beyond all shadow of a doubt this man knew god yeah he started on the right framework mm-hmm. right where everyone who's going to succeed in leadership and in life and in the christian journey starts in the right place right recognizing your nothingness your inability to do what needs to be done mm-hmm. a dependence upon god and a realization of our own nothingness and I mean, the guy even manifested the prophetic gift later in right. verse 11, like he was someone that could be used in a powerful way. And this this is in the very beginning of our discussion. We're already recognizing the scary danger mm-hmm. of everybody mm-hmm. that just because we may start in the right place doesn't right. guarantee that we're going to end the race in the same place. Yeah. And that's, that's part of what seems to happen here. So... Um, how God starts his story is how God wants his story to end. Yeah. And I think it's an important point, too, that God was rooting for Saul. Mm. It wasn't like God thought, well, we'll just put him in and, you know, like God God is very accommodating in this sense, that God is, is going to be working through the life of Saul, as we'll see, and it starts right, and God is pushing and trying to, to cue him up to succeed. Mm. Uh, but there's some important variables I think we're going to find um, in our study to realize that I'm just as vulnerable as he is. Mm. Um, that even if I start on the right track, that doesn't guarantee I'll end right. up. And you want people to start well. You know, it's important, I believe, that your Christian experience, your your walk with God is one that has powerful movements at its kind of inception. Not that you need to have an amazing conversion story, but you want to start with that very experience that God has given me a new heart you know, this new covenant experience. But I think it's so important for us to see, especially in this story, and then take that for ourselves. It's important to see that how you started isn't as important as how you continue. You know, it's one thing to start a fire, but if you just leave the fire there unkept and allow it to just dwindle over time, how you started no longer matters. There's no fire. Right. And if you don't finish the race, why run it? Mm. So you can start hard and fast, proper technique, but if you find yourself never even finishing the race, mm. 
what's the use at the end of the day? Right. And so uh, it's an important reminder and lesson to us to not just focus on how we begin, but also to ensure that how we continue in the midst of our journey and particularly in finishing strong. Right. Uh, we'll see this in our story together. And the next phase is that things start to unravel. Mm. Uh, things unfortunately take a turn that is not in the right direction. We get to 1 Samuel chapter 13 and the Israelites go to battle and Samuel tells Saul, I'll be there in seven days and wait for me. The problem is they're pending, right? The battle lines are formed, they're waiting, and the people are getting discouraged mm. because nothing's happening. And so Saul, out of his fear of the fact that the people are leaving and not knowing what to do, he does what's right in his own eyes. Mm. Uh, and this doesn't turn out well. Uh, ironically, one of the statements in Judges is, in those days there was no king in Israel. Uh, and so everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Well, what do you do when the king of Israel does what's right mm. in his own eyes? <laughs> it doesn't look good. Right. So beginning in verse 8, it says, Then he waited seven days according to the time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattered from him. So Saul said, Bring a burnt offering and peace offerings here to me. And he offered the burnt offering. And now it happened, as soon as he had finished presenting the burnt offering, that Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him, that he might greet him. And Samuel said, What have you done? Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattered from me and that you did not come within the days appointed, we already start to see some of the threads of what's mm -hmm. going to get him in trouble. Right. Blame casting. The people did their thing and you didn't do what you said. So there's not an immediate recognition of, well, I made a mistake. I got scared. I wasn't sure what to do. Immediately, everyone is to blame mm -hmm. but him. And I think this is really a kind of golden thread that kind of unites the patriarchs and the prophets and the kings throughout the Old Testament is that it's not that these men didn't have genuine experiences with God. They did. It's that they did not have the patience to wait on God, to trust his timing. I mean, yes, Samuel said, I'll be here in seven days. And on the seventh day, he didn't. He wasn't there yet, right. but he was coming. Um, and we see this right throughout the Old Testament, how how close they get. If you just waited a little bit longer, yeah. it would have worked out. And it kind of, it, it's your typical movie script, you know, where you, you know there's something that you're not meant to do, but you really want to do it and you wait and you wait and you hold off and then you do it, you give in. And as soon as you give in, the whole thing unravels, you know, mom comes home, sees, the, sees your hand in the cookie jar and you're like, oh, snap, why did you have to come at this very moment? But the truth is also, if you held out, she would have came home and there would have been no problem. And here we have Samuel showing up at the exact moment that Saul is hoping he doesn't. Um, but it just, I think, it just brings to light, as you said, these kind of missteps now that Saul is taking, where he's, he's starting to actually take responsibility for things he has no responsibility in. Exactly. And not taking responsibility in the things that he should. Yes. And it's a, it's a very, very precarious place he finds himself in. So he's blaming the people. He's blaming Samuel. You did not come within the days appointed. Mm. So when these people came in verse 12, then the Philistines are now going to come down on me. So And I've not made supplication to the Lord. Therefore, he says, I felt compelled and offered a burnt offering. Mm. So he kind of starts using these fig leaves of piety. He's trying yeah. to cover his shame and nakedness with his own works and his own, well, I was trying to be religious 
And so uh, I did this because because you failed me as a religious leader. Mm. So I had to do some religious things to try wow. to get the people in good shape. So it's your bad leadership, not my bad leadership, that got us in this situation. So Samuel says to Saul, you've done foolishly, mm. and you have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom of it over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be commander over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Now, one of the questions that can kind of arise is like, I mean, what he did wasn't that bad. Mm. We would think at first glance, right? He's just, he's engaged in a religious ceremony. Mm. He's engaged in an act seemingly of worship. That's not where he's coming from. Mm. He's not from a mindset of worship, but he's engaging in what a formal act of worship may have looked like. But he's trying to take the place of the priest of God and offering a sacrifice. He's trying to fill a role that God has not asked him to fill. Right while abandoning the role that he should be filling. Mm. And in this misunderstanding, he sets the nation up for hardship, he sets himself up for hardship, and this literally is what costs him the kingdom. The call to leadership is a mightily high one. This was the very time for Saul to show himself worthy of his title by submitting to God's word and waiting on the Lord. Instead, His actions confused his people. He put himself on a level playing field with God, which was exactly why God didn't want a king in the first place. Because there is nothing more likely to lead people astray than a man that has been elevated above his rightful position. The other thing I see here that scares me for him and even for myself is this idea that he recognizes things aren't going well and something needs to be done and he thinks he'll lose the people's respect Mm. by not doing anything but the people would have respected him more had he stood and say don't run don't leave god is about to do something wonderful Mm. so the very thing he was doing as as a people pleaser to try to keep the people actually causes him to lose their respect and what a testimony that would have been and so in, in a leadership role, we can be so prone to that, mm-hmm. right? I need to do something to keep them happy because they're only going to follow me if they really you know, feel like... But what he didn't realize was the actions he took led to the exact opposite result yeah. uh, because he's rebuked publicly by the religious leader of Israel for not having faith, for not doing what God has said. And it's not just that he's rebuked publicly. Like, he literally is told clearly, your days are numbered. Mm-hmm. You literally just lost the kingdom, and it only gets worse from here. He's trying to do what only God can do for the people in making them right before God's eyes, Mm -hmm. right? I need to do this sacrifice to ensure that the people are viewed as right in God's eyes without recognizing that that's the whole purpose of the gospel. Mm -hmm. The whole purpose of the sanctuary service was to let the people know that there's someone who's fighting for them, who's advocating for them, and that wasn't his job. That wasn't his role, and it ended up making matters even worse. And so it's kind of that Mr. Fix-It mentality. You know, Mm -hmm. I can fix things, something's wrong, so it's easy for me to try and fix things myself, and that I have to do this whenever the hard role in leadership is to be willing to actually look in the mirror and realize what you don't bring to the table Mm. and who you really are 
and ask God mm-hmm. to fight for you in those moments, to, to face your inadequacies, to face your inabilities, and, and to let him step in in that moment. And so yeah. when he was afraid and didn't know what to do, he started filling a bunch of roles that weren't even his to begin with. Yeah, and I feel like this really is kind of every man's struggle, especially within various offices of leadership, whether it be in the workplace, whether it be in the church, whether it be at, at home, to feel like because you have a position, it befalls you to be the one to sort this out. And the, the, the problem with that is that even if you do sort it out, how has that brought those under your jurisdiction any closer to God? If anything, all they're seeing now is that, oh, you could have done it by yourself. And therefore, if you could do it by yourself, I can do it by myself. And I think God really does put us in these positions where we are taken out of our comfort zone and we are required to do things that we don't have even the capabilities to do so that we can actually lean on him. I think this is such a vital aspect of leadership is admitting when you cannot do something. Going even like, can you imagine people? I mean, here we have we have the we have presidents and and back home we have a monarchy. You never hear an admittance from people in leadership that they're not adequate, that they need help, that there's someone outside of of you know that which they control that they need to bring in to understand something or to right. learn and for me that's such a testimony when i see someone in those positions humble themselves when i see them apologize publicly when i see them say i actually did mess up and i should have done this um all just turn to god and and allow him to to fill their lack that's an encouragement it's no encouragement to see leadership just doing things really well and taking glory and this this kind of hitting rock bottom of sorts in leadership is still a divine opportunity because mm-hmm. if this guy falls on the rock and is broken, his repentance and confession, even if it costs him an earthly throne, mm-hmm. is still not going to cost him a heavenly throne. Right. But he finds himself where he, he doesn't really understand himself or his own weaknesses. Mm-hmm. That's part of the battle and the struggle yeah. here. And you really have to know who you are without God to know why you need him. That's right. And Saul didn't learn that lesson here. Mm-hmm. So he's he, he's he's a perfect example of what living by the flesh looks like. Mm. I've got to be on the throne. I've got to figure it out. It's about me. I've got to solve. I've got to fix. And yet he's doing all this in the context of saying that God is unfaithful while trying to while being unfaithful to God and mm. trying to be faithful to himself. Oh. It's this strange paradox. God was unfaithful. God didn't do what he said he would do. So I'm going to need to fill the role of God in my own life. Mm to fulfill God's promises to me for me, like Abraham and Hagar, right. the whole situation. And the whole thing about the sanctuary service, because you know he's offering a sacrifice. The right. irony is the lesson of the sanctuary service was your inability to save yourself, mm. was your inability to do what needs to be done. And, and it was to humble you, right? Yeah. You take the walk of shame. If you lived in the north, the south, the east, or the west, you took that walk of shame from your tent all the way. Everyone sees it. You're not taking your sheep for a walk. They know what's <laughs> about to go on here. And you take the walk from your tent to the gate of the sanctuary, mm. and you confessed over the animal what you had done. You took the animal's life yourself, which is an immediate connection in the mind that I'm taking responsibility for what's happened, right? right? No one else kills this thing for me. I've got to end its life. The priest catches the blood, brings the blood in before the veil, and somebody, my job is to confess. My job is to take responsibility, and it ends there. Yes. 
the priest is now acting on my behalf to sprinkle that blood on the veil, right, to atone for the sin, and to ensure that when I leave that, that tabernacle, it doesn't matter what how many people saw me walking from my tent to the tabernacle, what weight and shame and guilt mm-hmm. I was feeling along the way. I can go home with a clear conscience because I know I'm right with God, but that journey began with humility and taking responsibility. Right. And this is not what his journey looks like. And so he bypasses that whole system and jumps straight to being the priest and killing an animal. This is why it's so offensive. This is why Samuel comes down on him like a ton of bricks, because he's saying, yes, you're getting to the point where you're taking responsibility maybe for what you should be doing, but you're also putting yourself in the office of Christ. That's why this is this is so great. That's why at this point, Samuel's already like, no, 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 you, you can't be king. Yeah. You didn't get it. You thought that you could lead God's people here on earth, but also be this, this type of Christ and that you would be the one administering these things. We're done. It was a sacrilegious offense to that. And ironically, the same thing happened to Moses. Mm. Moses is told right. to speak to the rock, right? Because it's already been struck once as an illustration of Christ dying for the people. Mm-hmm. And now you just speak and ask for the provision of God because Christ has already died and he hits the rock at a rage and fury over the obstinate people of Israel. And Moses himself mm-hmm. loses access to the promised land for the very same reasons. So God doesn't play around with these types and symbols. They were given for a reason. And when you start dancing around and rearranging the order of things, it's mm-hmm. a serious deal. Yeah. And I hope that that's going to help people understand that God's not being arbitrary. Mm-hmm. God's not being capricious. There's a specific reason why this is so offensive. Yeah. And it's, it's a big, big deal. And so you kind of see this difference between walking in the flesh of refusing to take responsibility, blaming others, swapping out roles that you shouldn't be filling, and walking by the Spirit, right? Living a life of continual obedience, confession, and humility before God. There are two different routes here. These things are contrasted very nicely in Romans 8 and other places, Mm -hmm. Galatians, this idea of Galatians 5, you know, the, the difference between walking according to the flesh and according to the Spirit. The root issue of that we see in this particular narrative. Mm-hmm. And so I think that one of the lessons we can take from this is the fact that it's not that God is not looking for reasons to forgive people. It's not like God is looking for reasons to discount people or, or cut them off. The problem is the only sin that God can't forgive is the one you don't confess. Right. And and now there was provision in the, in the Hebrew service where in the morning and the evening there were sacrifices that were offered for the sins of ignorance showing that God was fighting for people and looking for reasons to get them in the kingdom. Mm-hmm. But when you know what you've done mm. and you're refusing, that's a whole other story. Right. And that's Saul's story. Yeah. He knows what he's done. He's been called out on the carpet for it. And his immediate response is to harden himself mm-hmm. and refuse responsibility. And it costs him everything. The position has gone to his head. The reality is that power is dangerous because it has the tendency to just make us more of who we are. And when who that is is not surrendered to God's leadership in his word, the natural result is loss. Loss of respect, loss of position, loss of the kingdom. When we return, we'll see just how far Saul's rebellion goes and how someone once considered the brightest light in Israel turns to the very depths of darkness. I'm Dean Cullinane, and you're listening to Why They Did That. For nearly two decades, AFCO, 
the Amazing Facts Center of Evangelism, has been helping people from all backgrounds learn the practical skills about how to seek and save the lost. And now, it's getting even better. Amazing Facts is taking our comprehensive three-month training program to the next level at our recently constructed Word Center facilities. This new in-depth outreach training program distills the very best of more than 50 years of Amazing Facts evangelism expertise into a dynamic educational experience. This special training program, presented in partnership with Weimar Institute, will equip you to become a better soul winner, Bible worker, missionary, health evangelist, and all-round disciple. Also, AFCO's expert staff is going to help you put your new training into practical use by doing an overseas mission trip where you will conduct your own two-week evangelistic seminar. You'll gain real-life experience while winning souls to Christ. AFCO is all about learning while you're doing. While training at AFCO, you'll learn how to be a better public speaker, how to lead small groups, and how to utilize the latest technology to dynamically present Bible truth. You will learn how to confidently share your faith with others anytime, anywhere, while at the same time developing a vibrant personal devotional life. You can even earn college credits during this session. So if you desire to be an effective soul winner and to develop lifelong friendships with like-minded people, then contact AFCO now because there's going to be limited space for this life-changing program. Our next AFCO on location training will start August 19 through November 20th, 2021. For more information, please go to afco.org. That's A-F-C-O-E dot O-R-G. For the past two days, we have been running a free giveaway of Types and Symbols Conflict Beautiful set over on our Instagram. And I'm happy to let you know that the winner of that set is Aaron Waits. Aaron, congratulations. Assuming you do hear this, uh, DM us on Instagram and we'll sort out all the finer details. We'll have many more giveaways in the future, so keep your eyes peeled on our social media accounts and we'll see you guys soon. A Christian without a Bible is like a soldier without a sword. You can't win a battle like that. So we would like to introduce you to Humble Lamb Bibles. Humble Lamb's goal is to present the Word of God in a way that compels people to read it and thus connect with God more intimately. They make wonderfully crafted premium Bibles filled with cross-references, beautiful annotations, and many more built-in study tools. In addition to their King James Lion Bible, they are now excited to offer the new King James Shepherd Edition in a variety of beautiful colors. And get this, for every Bible they sell, they give another Bible away for free to those who can't afford one. And you can actually get 20% off when you use the code WTDT when you check out at HumbleLamb.com. Responsibility and leadership is to do what God says is right, not merely what we believe is right. It is not enough to go by your gut, by instinct, or even by a desire to keep the mob happy. When someone accepts a position in leadership, 
while not expected to be perfect, they are being elevated, lifted up, and unfortunately even venerated by some. Not only is the top of the mountain a lonely place, but the natural man struggles to breathe at such heights. And when you can't breathe, you can't make the right decisions. What Saul needed more than anything was to humble himself and surrender again to the God who allowed him this position in the first place. But as you and I know very well, few things are harder in this life than surrender. When I have erred, when I've made mistakes, when I've misrepresented God as a leader, my immediate act needs to be to fall on the rock, to humble myself, to take responsibility, and and to confess and move forward. And he doesn't see that. He doesn't do that. And had he done this, yes, he may have lost his earthly kingdom, but he could have still had the heavenly kingdom. But this misstep and a refusal to go back and address that, it, it just compounds with interest uh, as his life goes on. And so we get to chapter 15, and it happens again. Same set type of situation. First Samuel chapter 15, beginning of verse 8, uh, it says that they were fighting the enemies of Israel. They were told to completely annihilate the king, the people, the livestock, everything. And he comes back with the king and some of the best livestock. And he thinks he can do it his way. So in verse 8, they took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good. And they were unwilling to utterly destroy them. But everything despised and worthless, that they utterly destroyed. So we pick up to verse 10, and Samuel finds out what's gone on. Mm -hmm. And so Saul greets Samuel when he comes up, and in verse 12 he says, uh, actually just before that in verse 12 it says, So when Samuel rose early in the morning, he went to meet Saul. And it was told Samuel, saying that Saul went to Carmel, and indeed he set up a monument for himself. And this doesn't sound good, Mm -hmm. right? Like he's setting up monuments on his own behalf, uh, he clearly has forgotten where he came from. Right. That, that's a big stumbling block in his story. But then in verse 13, he greets Samuel by saying, Blessed are you, the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Wow. I've done what God has said. Mm-hmm. And to even muster the guts to say something like that tells you what type of a headspace he's in, mm-hmm. as if God wouldn't know. And you almost wonder, has he convinced himself of this? Mm-hmm. Because he knows he's not going to get away with lying. But in some form or fashion, you would assume, but in some form or fashion, he has convinced himself that this is actually true. And so the response that Samuel gives is, I think, one of the most savage responses in the Old Testament. He says, What then is this bleeding of the sheep that I hear and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? Mm. You're saying that you've obeyed. Well, then what is this noisy foolishness happening behind me here? And then he immediately starts casting blame in every direction but himself. Verse 15, they have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best things. And you know, they, and then we're going to give these to the Lord, your God, and the rest we've utterly destroyed. It's the same scenario, right? We're, we're not doing what God said, but we're trying to do it in some way, trying to get it on a technicality and make it sound religious mm. while flying in the face of what God has told them. And as what we're going to find out is, as more of this goes on is that this is not viewed as obedience. Right. 
And, and this is an important lesson for us, even mm. right now, that just because we're engaging in seemingly religious activities, but our heart is not in it, or we're not doing it the way in which God said, heaven does not view that as obedience. Mm. And even though we're doing the very types of things that heaven asks us to do, if the heart is not in it, and we're not doing it as God has said, it's not viewed as obedience. Right. And this is what Samuel basically says in verse 16, be quiet. And I will tell you what the Lord said to me last night. So he says, speak on. Verse 17, when you were little in your own eyes, were you not the head of the tribes of Israel? It reminds me of that quote we were talking about earlier, that when men see their nothingness, they're prepared mm-hmm. to be clothed with the righteousness of Christ. Clearly, Saul has lost sight of his yeah. nothingness. He's building a monument for himself. He's picking and choosing how he'll obey God. Right in his terms, and his conditions, he's completely lost sight of this whole spectrum of relationship. Mm. Who I am and who God is, right. we're not on the same plane here. But just because God favored me and gave me spiritual gifts and gave me a new covenant experience does not entitle me to, a, to you know striving for roles that God never gave me. This is such a dangerous place in spiritual leadership. You and I fill roles in, in varying fashions as spiritual leaders and as ministers. And this is such a a, a challenging thing to wrestle through because just because the Spirit of God has worked through you and in your life Mm -hmm. does not mean that that's heaven's endorsement that you have arrived. Right. Judas cast out demons. Mm -hmm. Judas healed sick people. Like we, We need to understand that just because heaven has blessed our efforts to date does not mean that we have done that. And so competency can be one of the greatest hindrances to an effective ministry for Jesus, because if you can roll out of bed and preach a sermon that makes people cry, you you can very quickly lose sight of the fact Mm. that this whole thing was a spiritual transaction. It wasn't about my charisma or my gifts or my Mm. position or my whatever. Like I have to remain in a dependent state at every stage, and even more so as success and elevation and adulation from others comes my direction. And so this is this is a very challenging warning to us. And so he says, when you were little in your own eyes, in verse 17, were you not the head of the, Isra- of the tribes of Israel? And did not the Lord anoint you king over Israel? Now the Lord sent me on a mission and said, go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they're consumed. Why then did you not obey? Hmm. So just because you did partially what God said, that's not viewed as obedience, Mm. right? Partial obedience is not obedience, and heaven does not view it as obedience. But I have obeyed the voice of the Lord, he says in verse 20. He's arguing with the Lord's mouthpiece, Mm. who's clearly delineating what he's done wrong, and his response is to justify himself. But I did obey, he says. I did obey the voice of the Lord, and I've gone on the mission in which the Lord sent me and brought back Agag, king of Ant. So I did what God said, and in the same breath, he says he didn't do what God right. said, because I brought the king back, and he shouldn't have brought him. And so, verse 21, but the people took the plunder, the sheep and the oxen, the best of the things that the Lord has given. And and, and again, but we're going to use it for the church service this, mm. this, this weekend, right? So I know God said not to do these things, but... It's going to be okay if we do it because we're going to use it for God. Mm. And so the response that Samuel gives him is, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. And this isn't just for people who lived in the Old Testament dichotomy or the, the Old Testament you know, framework where they had sacrifices and so forth. 
This is true for us. Yeah. Just because I'm following the seeming letter of the law by doing what God has asked, but I'm doing it on my terms or with an unfaithful, unloyal heart or unsurrendered heart, heaven does not view that as obedience. And I think it's so easy to to make this kind of checkbox religion our thing, where we are obeying and we are offering up the the right sacrifices. You know, I am waking up in the morning and I am reading the Bible and I am praying and listening to good music and doing all of these things. But as we've said time and time again already, it really is about the position of of the heart. Yes. You know, it's not so much as to to what you're doing. If if you're falling prostrate on the floor in worship, but your heart stands up in pride, heaven sees that. Yes. You know, heaven doesn't see our, our fake adulation. What it sees is, is this a heart that actually wants to be broken, that recognizes it needs to be remade, and there's only one way for that to be achieved. It's not through outward correction and through, you know, just really disciplining yourself and learning forms of religion, which I think is what Samuel is really trying to speak to Saul here is it's not okay to just to just do these things. I mean, there's a case to be made that even if Saul had killed the king, that there'd still be this conversation that needs to be had because the things that he's doing are, are still for himself. That's right. The brother's building monuments. And I, I, I would like to think that Samuel would have still come to him and said, no, sorry, this isn't obedience. That it's not okay to even just do the word of the Lord for the sake of pleasing others and keeping your position. Where's your heart? or that your view is, I need to do these to appease an angry God to get him to like me. Right. And, and this is the danger, and I think this is the challenge to us, because we're not trying to make it sound like nothing I've ever done is good enough, and God mm. isn't pleased with me, and God doesn't want me. The point that we're trying to make is, if you think that all God is interested in is what I do, right. you've missed the entire point. 100%. The entire point of the gospel is not what you do, it's what God has already done mm. in Christ. And two, it's not that I need to do things to get God to like me or to care about me or whatever. God sent his son because of God's love for us, right? Mm. In Romans chapter 5, verse 8, that, that God, out of his love for us, sent his son to die for us while we were yet sinners. Yeah. God shows his own love for mm. us. So God's love is evident. God's desire to have his people is evident. But God is more interested in the real estate of your heart. True deeds of obedience come from a transformed heart. Mm. But if you're just going through deeds of obedience and hoping that that will reach your heart, many times it will not. Mm. And that's what we need to better understand, that God is seeking for people to be saved. He's not looking for reasons to discount people. But if you just think that at the end of the day, all God's asking for is a checklist and we're good, you clearly have not understood who you're working with. Right. That's not how this thing is supposed to work out. And so he goes on and says in verse 23, For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. And because you've rejected the word of the Lord, he also has rejected you from being king. It's the second time he's had to tell him this. But we think to ourselves, like, look, how could I possibly be put in the same category mm -hmm. as a witch doctor in the bush of some third world country right. when I go to church every weekend mm -hmm. And I sing the right songs, I wear the right clothes, I don't say what I really think about that person. In fact, I treat them nicely. Mm. How on earth could God really view me in the same category? There's no chicken blood in my house. Right. How could you say such a thing? It's an issue of the heart. Mm. And it's, it's as offensive and egregious to be half-heartedly and, 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 and reservedly obedient just for the sake of the convenience of your hope that things are going to be okay, right? Then, if 
I'm sacrificing animals in the bush to demons. Mm. And again, it's because God wants to win your heart. Yeah. God is is desperately wanting to be everything to his people and wants his people to view him as everything to them. He wants a love relationship, not just deeds. Your marriage would be a mess if all you did was things just because you know this will make them happy, but your heart's not really in it and they yeah. know that. Mm. That doesn't count. Because you buy me flowers to get out of jail, but you're not taking responsibility for the argument that led to you being in jail, mm. your spouse isn't going to care. Right. It's no different here. God is longing for something even deeper and more substantive. Mm. That's the issue. Right. He's not coming hard and fast on people who are are not meeting the mark in their Christian experience. That's not what he's trying to do here. Yeah. He's trying to make it clear, Saul, you've got a heart issue, and it's dangerous, and I need you to change course. So he uses heavy language to awaken him to that reality, not as a statement of final and full condemnation, and I have no desire to be with you. You need to see your true condition yeah. for me to do what I want to do in your life right now. I love this verse because it points that out so clearly. It's so easy to sit on one corner of the room or if you want one corner of the church and look over and see, oh, look at what they're doing. You know, look at the mess that this person's life is. Um, in Even in the way that one would look at someone that performed dark magic and stuff like this, you just think that person is so lost. Wow. And really what God is saying here, he's saying, he's saying the, the rebellion that has, has grabbed their heart and shaped it and formed it is doing the exact same thing to yours. Yes. At the end of the day, the the evil witch that is that is engaging in in potions and all forms of satanism is going to end up in the same place as the people that have gone to church for their whole life and have given tithes and offerings and have tried to adhere to all of these things but inside they've always wanted to just to go to leave to escape the confines of god's will for their life both of those people are ending up in the same place Right, this divided heart is not what he's interested mm. in. God, God's not looking to have a timeshare relationship where I get you right. three times mm. a year quarterly. He wants all of you because you know if you're if you're just living in an appeasement context to make God happy, you've missed the whole point. Right. There's a God in heaven who's head over heels in love with you and wants to sweep you off your feet. But your refusal to go where he's leading you and to do the things he's asking in your life are depriving you of that benefit. Yeah. And it's a dangerous place to be. And so it seems as though he gets into verse 24. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I've transgressed the commandment of the Lord in your words. And then he tells us why. Because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Mm -hmm. I, 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 it seems as though he gets that he's messed up, he's kowtowed to the people, and he's not where he needs to be. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. He says, I'm not going to go with you. And this is kind of a point of transition, I think, for us in this conversation, because the confession that he gives, we're about to find out, is not from the heart either. Mm -hmm. And there's two different forms of confession that we see in Scripture that's kind of alluded to. There's this worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 uh, in the New Testament, this idea of godly sorrow versus worldly sorrow. And so it says in verse, I'll start in verse, uh, yeah, verse 10. 
He says, for godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation not to be regretted. I think the King James says not to be repented of. Mm -hmm. So he talks about a true repentance, and it's kind of scary to think about it, that there is a form of repentance that does need to be repented of, that heaven doesn't view it as true repentance. And this is the issue. It was an issue of the heart uh, regarding the worship and the obedience that Saul went through and had. It's also an issue of the heart regarding his confession. Mm-hmm. And so tr- if it's not truly from the heart, it's not really obedience. If it's not truly from the heart, it's not really confession. Mm. If it is, different story on both fronts. It's crazy to think that that we might need to go and ask for forgiveness for the way that we have previously asked for forgiveness. <laughs> yeah. And, it's beca- and the idea that Paul fleshes out here is basically, he says that godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted. Mm. But the sorrow of the world produces death. And so the premise he's basically alluding to is this idea that are you just trying to get out of trouble? Mm. Or do you really recognize that what you did wasn't just wrong, but that it grieved the heart of God? And that there's consequences surrounding you, right? Saul's failures in leadership didn't just hurt Saul. Mm. It hurt the nation as a whole. Right. And it broke God's heart because God is laboring for Saul's heart. Mm. God loves Saul. God wants him in the kingdom the same way he wants us in the kingdom. Mm. Even if we've got tepid repentance, tepid obedience, and we, we're just a confusing you know, mess on the inside, God's desire is still to have us in the kingdom. He doesn't want us to lose the kingdom, but he's laying out the framework of what true repentance looks like and what that path to heaven looks like. And it's going to involve taking responsibility, mm. confessing our sins, genuine repentance, and being willing to do fully all of what the Lord has said. Right? What the people of Israel at the base of Sinai said but didn't mean is what we really want, that all the Lord has said will be a reality in my life by mm. God's strength and God's power. They didn't do it that way. Whatever you want, we'll do that. All that God has said, we will do because we've got the power. We know what to do. Just stop talking so loud. We're scared right now. This misunderstanding of who God is and how he works is what leads to these fleshly responses. Mm. Clearly, Saul did not have a healthy view of God. If he did, he would fall on the rock and be broken because he realizes that I'm not God, he's God, for one. And two, if God is that desperate for my soul, why would I fight him? Right. Why would I ignore his clear challenges? The only reason why people find themselves, I think, in these tepid experiences is because of unhealthy views of God and unhealthy Mm. views of themselves. Right. So, I mean... How, how do you think then that you could tell the difference between this genuine sorrow and this worldly sorrow that, that Paul speaks of? I think a great example is in the life of David. Mm. Um, so David in Psalm 51, his prayer of repentance is so God-focused mm. and not self-focused. Okay. Against you, you only have I sinned. Please cast me not away from your presence, O Lord, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Right against you, you only have I sinned. This idea that I recognize that I am, I have transgressed. I've broken covenant with you. Right, Daniel does the same thing in Daniel nine. We have broken covenant. You've always been faithful to us, but mm-hmm. we've been unfaithful to you. It's that recognition that we have violated that transaction of trust. We violated covenant, and David does that. And it's very interesting because you get to Psalm chapter fifty-one, um, and David is repenting for his sins, and in the English translations of this, it doesn't read as clearly as it would in the original language. So in Psalm 51, it says this interesting statement in verse 3. He says, 
For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Then he says, against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. And then he says that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Mm. Now, when you read this in English, you think that David's basically saying that you're judging, and I want you to be proved right when you judge. And so I'm confessing that I did wrong, so that when you have to deal judgment to me, which David does receive, Mm -hmm. right, that child eventually dies. There's multi-generational issues in David's family from that point forward. God is not being unfair to me, David says. Mm. He recognizes that any judgment that I receive, I deserve. But that's not actually what David realizes as the impetus and the zeal of his repentance. Mm -hmm. Paul picks up with us in Romans chapter 3 and verse 4, and he actually quotes from this verse, but in in the English language, it actually reads more accurately. It's so strange that the quote in Romans of Psalm 51 and verse 3 is more accurate accurate than Psalm 51 and verse 3 in English, at least in the New King James, for whatever reason. So he quotes from this in Romans chapter 3 and verse 4, and it says this. He says, Certainly not. Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. David understand that people are making judgment decisions about God Mm. by looking at his own life. And David recognized that I have misrepresented God as an ambassador on God's behalf, as a believer, let alone the fact as a leader of Israel, and he's a spiritual leader of Israel. He realizes that that my foibles and failures in leadership aren't just about me and what people may think of me. David is not concerned about how he looks. And his repentance is broadcast to the nation of Israel in their worship services in the book of Psalms. Clearly, he's not worried about him. You see the same thing with Nebuchadnezzar. Mm. He broadcasts his weaknesses and his failures, and he he testifies of God's faithfulness and God's goodness. This is what true repentance looks like. Right. You're not focused on maintaining your reputation. You're focused on maintaining God's reputation. And this is not in word only. Exactly. Because it's easy to just say, okay, so that's how I need to pray. I need to just talk about God. Or I need to just say, God, I'm sorry for what I've done to you. When in actual fact, what this is getting at is that genuine repentance comes from a place of real pain, like genuine pain and guilt for what people are going to see God as now. Yes. And how this is going to affect the people that that surround you. In David's case, it was his entire kingdom. For you and I, it's going to be our various degrees of influence. And for me, that really does, it makes it pretty black and white. When I come to God, and I'm, and I'm on my knees and I'm praying, what am I really asking? You know, am I asking God, please clear me of this sin? Or Lord, I don't want anyone to find out about this. I need you to protect my reputation because, you know, if you don't, then such and such could happen. When in actual fact, where are our minds and by that our heart needs to be is in a place where we say, Lord, even if you don't protect my reputation, if, if, if destroying my reputation is what's needed to clear your name. To clear your name. And your reputation. I'm on board. Yes. Like, if that's what's necessary for you to be vindicated in all of this, break me. Yeah. And that's the difference. It's the soil of the heart. So his, his repentance is God-focused. Saul's repentance is, is Saul-focused. Mm-hmm. Let's just not talk about this anymore. Right. And Because and, it happens right after this. Going back to 1 Samuel 15 and verse 27. Then Samuel turned around to go away, but Saul seized the edge of his robe, and it tore. And this mm-hmm. is kind of the point of transition. His robe tears, 
and it says, So Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today mm. and has given it to a neighbor of yours. And then he says, Who is better than you? Wow. If there's anything that's going to inflame the flesh, it's a statement like this. Mm. And, and so again, he says in verse 30, I've sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of the people. Mm. So if we just look at the words that he says, we may be tempted to believe he gets it. Mm. But what he's saying and implying is, honor me, forgive me. I want the people to not think that I'm a loser yeah. and that I'm in trouble. So if you come back and worship with me, we can solve this awkward situation that's going on right now. So his repentance is clearly not God-focused, it's self-focused. And this is where the the line of diversion takes place between Saul and David. Absolutely. In that David's life in many ways and and his the life that he lives on the throne you could argue is far worse. It absolutely is. Than what Saul does. The difference as we've said is that David takes responsibility for these things and what I think takes someone from being a a grotesque sinner who loses both kingdoms that they've been given, both on earth and in heaven, the difference between him and someone that God can say, this man sought my heart. Like, he never disobeyed me. He came after me continuously. The difference between those two is not necessarily what you're saying in your repentance, but where your heart actually is. Yeah. It's an amazing story because God is in the business of being faithful to his people in the midst of their unfaithfulness. Mm. And we, but that that transaction begins with repentance. Yeah. And the fact that Jesus takes ultimate responsibility for the sins of humanity gives us that freedom and that courage to do so. But yeah, I mean, after David's dead and buried, God says these scandalous things like, you've not walked in obedience like my servant David did, who only obeyed continually. And you think, okay, there's sexual assault in his lifestyle. Is there another David? (laughs) Yeah, is there a different King David he's talking about? The guy's guilty of sexual assault. The guy's guilty of murder and lying in all kinds of situations. You know, pride and doing a census. And yet the situation is totally different, even in the situation with the census, mm. right? Whenever David clearly does something he shouldn't do and his his military commander doesn't even want to do it and doesn't even fully do it because he's not okay with it, mm-hmm. God brings a plague upon Israel and David's immediate concern is, Lord, these are the sheep of your pasture. Right. Bring that on me. Like, don't do that to these people. So even his repentance later in life looks that way. It's not just Psalm 51. And so I think there's a big, big difference here that we have to understand. Um, it's not because you know he was better or worse than Saul. It's that he understood how the kingdom truly operates. Mm. They operate on the currency of heart, not mouth. And you know the true deeds of the heart are what heaven weighs mm. in the scales of justice. Saul is going to a terribly dark place, and so God turns to the ace up his sleeve. In order to save this king, he calls David, the one who is going to take Saul's place on the throne. It even goes as far as putting him in the palace so he can minister to him, not to rub salt in Saul's wounds, but rather to preserve Saul's very soul. Can Saul ever be a leader again before God's people? Not likely. But can his seat at the heavenly table remain reserved? Of course. But Saul despises this act of mercy. He tries to kill David multiple times, both inside and outside the palace. And this, friends, this is the work of the Spirit. 
It's conviction. And there's two ways to receive it. Humble yourself, repent and turn. Or do all you can to silence, to kill that voice. And that's the danger. This isn't just about how Saul lost his kingdom. It's how you and I can lose ours also. If you want to be lost, this is the blueprint. Refuse to take responsibility. Refuse to repent. Reject conviction and walk in your own wisdom. How many of us will lose our place in the kingdom just because we strived to retain whatever kingdom it is we have on this earth? I, I have a story of this in my own life where I, my dad um, was, 9-11 woke him up, but the September 11th attacks happened in the United States of America. My dad realized mm. that the world is ending and I'm not ready. We weren't going to church. That wasn't really our thing. We weren't atheists, but just we, did, we didn't go to church. Sure. And my dad realized the world is ending and I'm not ready. And he starts getting serious about Jesus. And I'm clueless. I'm a lost teenager doing my own thing, numbing pain all the time. But my dad started showing me love in a way I'd never experienced before, beginning in the, in the August of 2004. And I wanted what he had, and I didn't care what it cost. Something was different, and he had what I've been looking for my whole life. And I remember about a year later, uh, I just finished doing professional music for a summer, and I came back, and my dad sits me down in his bedroom. And in tears, he confesses to me that he failed me as a father spiritually. Now, my dad could not give me what he did not receive. But the point is, when you have a true encounter with Jesus, even the things that people didn't set you up to succeed in, you now recognize what God does expect. And God wasn't, you know, like holding my dad's feet to the flame about what he didn't know. The point was, once my dad did understand how the kingdom of heaven truly works, and he realized how much he had missed the mark as a father, even though he didn't have the infrastructure lessons, it wrecked him. And my dad is crying, confessing his sins as a father, and he asks me for my forgiveness. And he says, D, have I hurt you? And I remember thinking to myself, why is my dad crying? Like, this, this is the hero. He's the guy that converted me. He didn't just bring me into the world. Like, he converted me. And I couldn't understand why my dad was crying. And I didn't appreciate it then. Mm. But you better believe I appreciate it now. Because the easy thing to do in that scenario, as us in leadership positions, and eventually as parents and husbands and so forth and spouses, is to make the changes and be better going forward. Mm. But to go back and face who we've been and own that Mm. is a whole nother story. And I learned that day, that's what a man looks like. That's what Mm. it means to live a kingdom life, is to take responsibility. And I made a vow, that's what my life is gonna look like. I don't care how embarrassing it is, I don't care how difficult it is, when I find myself in circumstances and I've hurt people, I have to make that right. And I don't mean living in this like, overactive conscious state of like, oh man, like, I accidentally pumped my brakes twice at the stoplight. I better get out of my car and apologize to the person behind me. Like, that's not what we're saying here. But when we know that we clearly have done something that has wronged an individual, and we realize that we've been running from taking responsibility, the best thing we can do for reconciliation for those relationships is to do so. You don't lose respect. And and that's part of why we don't do it. My kids won't respect me if I acknowledge that I have brokenness and weaknesses or made mistakes. But 
that's so backwards. That's how Saul lived. And I don't know about you, but when I read this book, I don't get the idea that, man, I really appreciate Saul's leadership. That's the type of guy I'd like to follow by not taking responsibility. I find the exact opposite. When I look at David owning his mistakes, when I look at Nebuchadnezzar owning his mistakes, when I look at Jesus taking responsibility for his mistakes he never made, that's what's endearing to me. And that's what clears that relational debt. And that's what actually calls people higher. I want to live a life that looks like that. And once you kind of get over that hump of, of not being so averse to owning and taking responsibility, life gets better. You're going to sleep better. Your relationships are better. And I made a vow. That's what I want my life to look like. And it radically, radically, radically transformed my life. And I'm thankful for that illustration of my own personal experience that only took the story of Scripture and this premise of Scripture of it being a heart issue to a whole nother level for me. And I'll never forget it. I'm forever indebted for it. He that hath an ear, let him hear. And you've just heard our latest show. If you'd like to hear more or hearken back to a previous episode, you can find us at whythedidthat.org. We would love it if you could subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you could go as far as leaving a review, that would be amazing. You can follow us on your favorite social media accounts, Facebook or Instagram, at whythedidthat. And of course, YouTube, where you can actually watch this episode now as well as listen to it. So make sure to check that out too. Finally, if you would like to support this podcast and keep it running, please consider becoming a Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash WTDT. This show was produced by the supremely talented Paul Keefe and the video editing by Jonathan J.J. Jensen. And a special thank you to everyone else on the Why They Did That team. Once again, I'm Dean Cullinane, and you're listening to Why They Did That.